This is Faith and Fable, a pastoral podcast where we discuss common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. I'm Mark. I'm Matt Miller. And I'm Matt Henry. And I'm Lena. We're getting back into our conversation about traditionalists. So last time we got into the first aspect of their statement, specifically their statement on the gospel, which is obviously the biggest issue. We really dug into the scripture passages quoted, and there were a lot of issues with those. So let's get back into it with the next article. So yeah, now now we're going to deal with, they try to argue that there is a way of salvation made by Christ. And we were showing that none of those passages were supported, supporting that point. So now they their second article is the sinfulness of man. And again, very important doctrine. This is what they write. They say, we affirm that because of the fall of man or fall of Adam, every person inherits a nature and environment inclined towards sin, that every person who is capable of moral action will sin. Each person's sin alone brings the wrath of God or wrath of a holy God, broken fellowship with him, ever worsening selfishness and destructiveness, death and condemnation to an eternity in hell. So that's their affirmation. Then they have a denial. We deny that Adam's sin resulted in the incapacitation of any person's free will or rendered any person guilty before he has personally sinned. While no sinner is remotely capable of achieving salvation through his own effort, we deny that any sinner is saved apart from a free response to the Holy Spirit's drawing through the gospel. So I can save us a lot of time because... What, what do we agree on that, Matt? Nothing. Right, nothing. Yeah, that, was, that, that is pretty that bad. Is, that, that's not just pretty bad. That's just atrocious. Yeah. I'm embarrassed. Well, so, so here's why we disagree. Um, <laughs> so yeah. we, we would agree that every person has a sin nature. I mean, that's not an issue, but we disagree on what that means. Um, so for the traditionalist, I mean, according to the statement, it's defined as one who is inclined towards sin, which right there we have issues with. That's yes. Inclined. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then they say, they, they state that everyone who is capable of sinning will sin. So if, if you're capable of sinning, so you're inclined towards sin, and then if you're capable of sinning, you will sin. So which is it? <laughs> yeah. So here, though, you know, the, the traditionalist view, it's, it's driven by, you know. By the way, real quickly, right there, they're, they're already arguing more for the act of sin rather than the state of being a sinner. Sinner, yeah. Yes. So it's just. Uh, it's not what you are, it's what you do. Yeah. yeah. Um. So they're they're driven by a presumption though that man has free will and in you know to be mean or non charitable and it is what it is but they do this to get God off the the hook essentially to make him try and make him just and make his judgments just you know because if if man doesn't have free will then how can they justly be held responsible uh, and that's that's kind of the issue so they're trying to work this to where you know man, man has totally free will so that then when God judges him guilty God is just in doing so. Um, my question though is how does this statement make anybody truly free? Um, in this view, if, if you're inclined towards sin, then anyone who's inclined towards sin will sin. How are you truly free? I mean, you're, you're not. No. <laughs> so it's, it's a lot of words right. just to ultimately say you're, you're not, you're, you're not really, free. you're going to sin and God is going to judge you as a sinner. Now, uh, as a Calvinist, we would say you do have a free will 
but that free will is confined by your nature. Yeah. So what is the nature of this person? It's it's a sin nature, therefore he freely sins. But they that they don't want that. They want it somehow is that you're inclined towards sin, but somehow your free will is not affected by this. It's yeah. like you the, the end game is that you can't not sin in their position anyway. Um, but again, uh-huh. it's it's a, a system of ropes and pulleys to try and get God off the hook so that he's just in judging you. The Calvinist position, on the other hand, understands and affirms things like Ephesians 2, where it just simply states we are all dead in sin. Um, so this is this is not so much what you do as much as it's a state of being. You are dead in your sin, and that's vastly different than someone who's just inclined towards sin, whatever that means. Um, so either Ephesians 2 is absolute, or it's not. Um, so we would say a person is utterly defined by a state of deadness. Um, and again, as you said, if they have free will, it's only in that, that realm to which they belong, which is the realm of sin and deadness, if you will, according to Ephesians two. But you say, I mean, you have another passage on this that you talk about. Yeah. I have a favorite one to deal with it because it touches on all of the points that a person usually is trying to make. It's out of Romans chapter eight. Um, It deals with this uh, in detail, but also succinctly. So it gives two concepts, the mindset and the flesh and the mindset and the spirit. And what Paul is talking about are unbelievers. They're the ones who have their mindset and the flesh and the ones who are believers, the ones who have their mindset and the spirit. So I don't have time to defend that. But if you go back to the passage and you look at it, it becomes very obvious. But he then says this in verse 6, For the mind that is set on the flesh is death. And right there you have your very first reality of, for, of the non-Christian is that they're dead. There's not a living mind there. There's not an almost alive or a sort of dead. They're just dead. So the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. And so he's making that contrast of a believer and unbeliever. And then he explains in verse 7, he says, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. So now we have our second harsh reality for the unbeliever. Not only are they dead, but the mind or the heart is hostile. It's at enmity with God. It's not, there's not a neutrality. There's not a, a friendship in any way. They are actively opposed to God. Um, and then he explains further, why is why is the unbeliever hostile toward God for this reason? For it does not subject itself to the law of God. Here we're dealing with the will, for it's not willing to subject itself or to obey God. Now, if it stopped right there, they could try to make the argument, yes, but if they change their will, if they decide to obey God, things would change. But that's not where Paul ends. He now becomes brutal. He says, so the unbeliever, their mind is dead. It's hostile to God. It's not willing to obey God. And then he says this, for it's not even able to do so. So the fourth harsh reality is that not only are they unwilling to obey God, they don't have the ability to obey God. It, it just doesn't exist. And then he ends it with the last one, for those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And the most pleasing thing God you can do before God is repent you know, or believe, and yet they can't even do it because they're actively incapable of doing so. And so when we talk about the sinfulness of man, that is not a description of a guy who's merely inclined towards sin or somehow 
sort of a sinner. He, this is a man utterly in the grips of, of the power of sin, and there is no way that they can break out of that. So, so we, we deny their denial. We would deny their, their statement of denial. We don't agree with their affirmation on that one, and certainly their denial. Um, so in short, they would say that each person acquires their own personal guilt before God once they sin. Um, and of course, this is in the, the face of overt biblical passages and statements. For instance, Romans 5.18, through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. And so, there are these two heads, fancy term, there are two federal heads. You have Adam and his sin, which represents all of mankind. You have Christ and his righteousness, which represents all who are, are righteous. And so, every person inherits their guilt from Adam. This is not an individualistic reality. This is a, a corporate reality. And on the other side of that, all who are in Christ inherit their righteousness from him. He's their representation. And so, this is representative language. It it offends us in the West because we love our individuality, but, you know, this is this is the biblical reality. So, that that's a statement of, on sin, we don't agree with any of it, and yeah, find it unhelpful. It, well, it, it, I, I find it dangerous because it really does minimize the reality that you're born in sin, and, and as a result, your nature is sinful, and therefore, by nature, you sin. You don't become a sinner because you sin. You become a sinner because you're born. Yeah. And you sin because you are a sinner. Are a sinner. Yeah. It, it, yeah. The, the nature precedes the act. Yeah. And they, they're just like with faith and regeneration, they're right. flipping it, and it's bad. It doesn't maybe sound too bad if you just think about lightly, but once you start scratching it, it's it's a deadly, deadly thing. Behind all of that, there's additional things they're trying to work for the the age of accountability, you know. Things like this. They're also going to make later arguments, not in this um, document, but make arguments for what about those people who have never heard the gospel? You know, will they go to hell? And so there's a lot of stuff behind what they're saying because they believe some very dangerous things and deadly things. And we we just want to say, no, that's that's not right. Yeah. So Article 3, the Atonement of Christ. Um, here's their affirmation now. We affirm that the penal substitution of Christ is the only available and effective sacrifice for the sins of every person. We deny that this atonement results in salvation without a person's free response of repentance and faith. We deny that God imposes or withholds this atonement without respect to an act of a person's free will. We deny that Christ died only for the sins of those who will be saved. So, what would we agree with in that? We agree with the affirmation. We, yeah. we we would hold to the penal substitution of Christ. I would also say they don't, mm -hmm. um, but <laughs> but they, but they're using the right words. Um, so we agree with that affirmation. Uh, and the, and the listeners should understand there's a lot of views on atonement. We're actually going to do a podcast on them. Um, and and behind that is the uh, desire to try to figure out exactly what did Christ do on the cross. Uh, but there's different views. They're called like the ransom view, the Christus Victor, the governmental view. Um, when you use the word penal substitution, which is not used anymore in the pulpit hardly at all, uh, but it should be, it means that Christ paid the penalty of sin. That's the penal, that he, he took our penalty, and he did it as our vicarious substitute. He stood in our place. 
the understanding here is one of justice. How how can God be a holy and just God and yet forgive a sinner? Well, the only way he can do it is by punishing the sin. Well, how can he pun if if he punishes our sin, we go to hell, right? Mm. Uh, so what do we need? We need somebody to take our sin upon himself, and that's what Christ did. Um, and that, so it's here that the judicial wrath and the justice have to be met, and Christ met that on our behalf. So he becomes the one who he took our punishment, and he he became our substitute, and and in that we have that life. Again, this document denies all of that. All they, all they, they said in their, their original affirmation that all he did was open a way. Now they're trying to actually say he is our penal substitute. It's like, no, you can't, you can't have it both ways. He's either merely a way to get saved or he actually is my substitute. And I'm believing that and trusting in that. Yeah. So the disagreements. Yeah. Well, uh, we would deny their denial. Um, we do that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, and the reason for that is if penal substitution means Christ actually paid the penalty, then the question becomes, how can God actually or justly condemn anyone? Um, if, if justice has been met in the, you know, the outpouring of wrath on Christ, then it would stand to reason that God would be unjust in condemning a person then for their sin. Why? Because that would be a form of, of double jeopardy. Right. That's if, unjust. If, if he took my, if he actually stood in my place and suffered my punishment in reality, yeah. not potential, but in reality, he really did. Then why am I going to hell? Yeah. Justice has been met. I, and yeah. I can plead that. I can be in heaven saying, Hey, yeah. I don't believe in him, but he took my punishment. He's yeah. my penal substitute. Yeah. So, so if you're then in hell un, under the condemnation of your own guilt, there, there's two punishments going on. One took place at the cross and now one is taking place for all of eternity right. in hell. This is double jeopardy. This is unjust. This makes God unjust. And, and that's why we're saying they don't know what penal substitutionary really is. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so with this, though, you have, you have some people who say, okay, but you're talking about hell with relation to payment for sin. Um, so guys like Leighton Flowers, for instance, he, he would say that nowhere in the Bible does it say the purpose of hell is to atone for sin. He would say that's not what you're doing there. Um, which, fine, fine. Um, we won't even, we don't need to debate that, but then... By definition of penal substitution, you can't say that, as we've already been talking about, that you can hold to a penal substitution by definition if it's been paid for. Right. Um, if if sin, if you know, if if the just deserts of sin is death, and that death has been already paid for by Christ, then why are we dying? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the, the whole issue of penal substitution is deals with the issue of, of penalties, and I mean that's inherent to the definition. And so if Christ satisfied that, then the only necessary result is an accomplishment and applying of that guilt on behalf of a person. And so if, if he, if he took that, that guilt, it's now been applied to you. He accomplished that. And so they can't truly hold the penal substitutionary atonement and say, it, 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 <laughs> and this is where I really get frustrated with this because again, this is purporting to be a theological document, but it's theologically just atrocious it's like come on you guys should know better than this yeah. um at least hold to one of the other views of atonement right yeah <laughs> you know yeah but don't try to hold to the one that actually disproves your point yeah um so then they go into a, a wonderful doctrine the the grace of god so that's article four and this is what they say they say we affirm that grace is god's generous decision to provide salvation for any person by taking all of the initiative in providing atonement 
There's that way of salvation again, providing atonement in freely offering the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit and in uniting the believer to Christ through the Holy Spirit by faith. We deny that grace negates the necessity of a free response of faith or that it cannot be resisted. We deny that the response of faith is in any way a meritorious work that earns salvation. So mm-hmm. we're talking about agreement. Yeah, so on the surface, on the surface, we would agree with that, the affirmation. Um, you know, the, the rub for us, though, you know, the, the whole thing turns on what does it mean when they say providing, providing salvation, which we've already talked about in Article 1 in the last podcast, so we won't rehash that. Um, you know, we, we could keep this entire statement, um, but we would want to substitute the word provide with accomplished and applied. Yeah. <laughs> Not just made away, but that something actually happened. Um, you know, we would also agree with their, their statement in the denial portion that faith, that faith isn't a meritorious work. Faith is truly a gift. And we get that from Ephesians. Yeah. We, too, yeah. In all of this, you realize that they're, what they're really trying to do is head off challenges. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the problem is that they create all kinds of problems in their attempt to try to head off, you know, people who are like us saying, this is really bad. Mm-hmm. Um, so the disagreements, we're going to disagree with the, the first part of this denial for reasons that we've already stated. They're trying to, what they're really trying to push here is not grace. What they're really trying to push, like they're doing in the rest of the document, is the free will of mm-hmm. man. That's it. Um, and if, if, if a listener can figure that out, then they're going to be fine. A person's not free. The Bible just doesn't teach that. Um, according to the Bible, in Ephesians 2 and in Romans 8, we just looked at those passages and talked about them. You're dead in your trespasses, said not, not somehow alive. You're dead, and you're unwilling and incapable of, of believing. You're in hostility to God. So the only thing you're free to do is to live in that realm that you exist, in that realm of an unbeliever is one of utter hopelessness. It's, mm-hmm. it's of open rebellion. It's of unwillingness and inability to love God, follow God, or obey God, or believe in God. There's no real debate about people having a choice. If somebody wants to say, well, did you choose Christ? I'm going to say, of course I chose Christ. That's not the question. The question is, why did I choose Christ? They would argue, it's because I have a free will. And I'm going to argue, no, it's because God did a work in my heart. It's it's just, we both are going to say you chose, but how you chose and why you chose. Um, the real question you have to deal with in this is, can you make a choice that's contrary to your nature? And so in all of that, it gets into the realm of Adam and the realm of Christ. I mean, if you're in Adam, you're dead. If you're in Christ, you're alive. The question is, how do you get from one to another? Yeah. And so... In that, we pick up with that Article uh, 5. Yeah, so Article 5 now is, is on the regeneration of a sinner. And this one states, We affirm that any person who responds to the gospel with repentance and faith is born again through the power of the Holy Spirit. He is a new creation in Christ and enters at the moment he believes into eternal life. We deny that any person is regenerated prior to or apart from hearing and responding to the gospel. So we, we agree with nothing. In this, Are you noticing a, <laughs> a trend here? A little bit. Um, so, yeah, we don't agree with any. What would we? What are some things we disagree with? Well, again, this is a hard one to discern on the surface. Um, 
But the issue is, does faith precede regeneration or does regeneration precede faith? And a lot of people have never even thought about that. Yeah. All they know is, I don't know, I, I, I trusted in the gospel. I'm, I'm a Christian and I'm happy. And for most people, they can go through the life that way. But once you start trying to figure out exactly how or why a person is saved, it actually affects things. So um, if you're going to argue for faith, is how you become born again, then an altar call is a wonderful thing because what you're doing is trying to get the person to come down, express faith, and then we can announce that they are now born again. But so that, that's a methodology that arose out of a different type of theology. Um, the denial in this that you just read presumes that faith must precede regeneration, and we just simply disagree. And again, mm-hmm. it's going to be the passages we talked about and there are loads more, but um, if a person's dead, how can they respond? Um, yeah. yeah, Ephesians, Ephesians two. You know, the 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 classic Arminian position is they would hold to something called provenient grace, um, which is the idea that you know when when Christ sent the Helper, the Spirit, the Spirit went out over all of the world and sort of softens people's hearts, and so now all men are capable because of that that first or that prevening work of the Spirit. They're able to respond to God's free offer of salvation. And this is what blows my mind, is that the traditionalist is going to deny that. Yeah. But the Arminian, even though I am very much adamantly opposed to Arminianism, I appreciate the fact that they would actually say that all men are born totally depraved. They Mm -hmm. are fully uh, controlled and affected by sin. And because of that, that's where they develop. I think a very bad doctrine, but I can understand why they did. They they're like well, everyone it also keeps is orthodox. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's true. It keeps them actually in the, the realm of non heresy. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they're they're trying to resolve. Okay, if you're dead in sin, then you can't come to Christ. But then God, in His grace, opens a way, softens our heart. Mm-hmm. So the fa- very fact that we freely choose Christ is purely the work of grace of God. Because yeah. if he had not worked, but he does it to everybody. Uh, the traditionalist, though, denies yeah. it. Yeah. Well, and they deny it for the same reasons we do. There's zero biblical warrant for it. Um, yeah. So it sounds it sounds really good. I mean, and you know, and I, and I could see the attraction to it because, in some sense, it does kind of hold up the justice of God and the freeness of man, kind of, even though God still had to do something first. But uh, you know, but they deny it for the same reasons that we do. There's there's no biblical warrant to it. Um. Rather, the traditionalists, so they would say that you're inclined towards sin and as such you will sin. But again, built into that is the presumption that you can freely choose faith in God um, because you're just, you're inclined towards sin. And again, it gets slippery. It's weird. I don't understand how you can be inclined towards something. Then if you're inclined toward it, you will do it. Then that's not inclined. That's you, you yeah, are yeah. enslaved. Right. So this, when you strip it all away, that's nothing less than just flat out Semi-Pelagianism. Which they vehemently deny, because why? What, what is sem, uh, semi-Pelagianism? Well, semi-Pelagianism is the idea that essentially you, you have to make that first step, and you're capable of making a first step, and then once you do, God will, will come and meet you. And it's called heresy. Yeah. I mean, it was <laughs> condemned many, many, many a millennia ago. <laughs> yeah. I mean, way, way back in the early yeah. church councils, this, this was condemned, and yet— that's exactly what they're arguing for is that God has done everything he can do. Now it's up to you. Right. And, 
and that's all built bound up in the free will. Yeah. And it's, it's terrible. It's, it's fably, but it's worse than fably. Yeah. It's actually heresy. And, and just because they want to say, no, it's not self semi-pelagianism doesn't make it not semi-pelagianism. You can slap a new label on it, but it's yeah. 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 They're saying if you can do something in your natural state toward God, that's semi-pelagianism or just flat out pelagianism, <laughs> you know, um, but again, this is where it's, you know, slippery. They have to assume certain things in order for their system to work. And of course, the major assumption there is, I mean, what we would say and, and can only understand to be a semi-Pelagian system. So, yeah, this is, uh, I mean, this is heretical. It is. <laughs> so, yeah. so are they, does that make them all non-Christians? Yeah. I, well, if it's heretical, I don't know. I mean, so... That's, that's where it gets nasty, It is, because it? they can't judge intent. You know, I think some people are genuine, but I, mean, I, think, I, I think there's some people who understand the yeah. gospel, but it's, it's how they get there that's Yeah, the gospel shifting. is still the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right. And in spite of our own idiocy, God saves us. Yes. Um, and so I think like uh, Dr. Flowers, Leighton Flowers, I think he's full of hooey. Yeah. I mean, one day we're going to just take some of his stupid statements on his uh, website and just mock them because they need to be mocked. Yeah. Um, but if, if you were to press him, do you think he could give I, the gospel? I, yeah. I yeah. think, I think he understands what the gospel is. I just think that he is so caught up with this love of free will yeah. um, and, and a and, hatred. Exactly. And yeah, a yeah. hatred for yeah. what he thinks is Calvinism, but it's been abundantly proven as I listened to him and read his stuff. He doesn't really understand Calvinism. He has created up a caricature mm-hmm. Um, but that's fine. Um, he he just he wants that free will, and as a result, it forces them down a path like these traditional yeah. statements. And it's like you can't do it. Um, you just can't, yeah. you can't do it. Uh, it it doesn't hold water once you pick start picking at it. Yeah. So you know, someone might ask, well, then why are you talking about it? What's the big deal? Why you know, if you were to press him, who's kind of like a major proponent of traditionalism. And he could give you the gospel. Why are you making a big deal out of it if he's if you would call him a brother? And I mean, ultimately, we would have to say because the end point of this has to do with worship. Yeah, right. Which is the goal. I mean, Paul in Ephesians one three through fourteen essentially begins, "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus." And then the rest of those verses. Okay, what's the blessed be God? What what that's worship, right? That's praise, yeah. Right. Blessed praise to God. And then he gives all these verses of things like election and union with Christ and predestined, all these things. But those are the categories then for praising God mm-hmm. and what you're praising him for. Yeah, in fact, three times he says in that. And it's actually one sentence in the Greek, right? Yes. <laughs> really fun to translate, um, <laughs> you know, when you're yeah. just learning Greek. But, but three times he says, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Mm-hmm. That's it. All of this theology is to a doxology, a, a praise yep. to God. And so it's not just minor. It's, it's true worship, proper worship, mm-hmm. intimate worship with God. Yeah. Um, so, so, so bad theology necessitates bad worship. Yeah. Good, rightful, rich theology equates to good, rightful, rich worship, which well, is what we're interested in. And, but it also l- l- leads to false conversions. Yeah. And that's one of the huge problems in the Southern Baptist. I mean, this kind of off the point, but it's to the point. And that is you have untold thousands of people who, when you ask them, how do you know you're saved? They point to a decision they made. Mm-hmm. They raise their hand, they walk the aisle, they said a prayer. And so they know they're saved. 
they show no evidences of a converted heart, but they're saved. And and if if it's the free will of man that's the ultimate deciding factor of whether a man is saved or not, then you can point to that. But but if it's the converting power of the Holy Spirit that brings true saving faith, that produces true works that are in keeping with a saving faith, like James says, then that's a whole different ball of wax. Yeah. And and so and and so then you're producing people who are thinking they're saved because they exercise their free will and they're going to go to hell believing about their free will. And you never have created a true worshiper. Mm-hmm. So it goes back to your original point of it's really about worship. Yeah. You've got a bunch of people sitting in churches who don't love the Lord. They've never been converted and they're trying to worship a God they don't love. And, and therefore now we have to change our whole worship style so that we can appeal to unregenerate people yeah. um, rather than a call to the people of God to worship. And it, so it, 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 once you start down that road, you end up with Stephen Furtick yeah. and the Elevation Church and the garbage that goes on in a church like that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's simple. All right, so Article 6 then is the, the election to— have we, have we annoyed everybody yet, mm-hmm. or is there somebody we're missing? <laughs> All right, go about the election. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, uh, the election to salvation. We affirm that in reference to salvation, election speaks of God's eternal, gracious, and certain plan in Christ to have a people who are his by repentance and faith. We deny that election means that from eternity, God predestined certain people for salvation and others for condemnation. So, we would agree with what on this? No. Oh. Vaguely, we agree that there is a corporate aspect, and that's what they're really arguing for, is election is not that I personally was elected unto salvation, but that there's that God has chosen before the foundation of earth a group, an undefined group, who will be saved. And when you exercise your free will, you become yeah. one of those. Um, so it's, it's trying to say, yeah, God's elected people to salvation, but not specifically they don't define who the elect. Yeah, that's up to you, are. right? Yeah, and if you're yeah. willing to do it, then you become the elect. So, mm-hmm. um, it gets into some serious problems. So we're mm-hmm. going to disagree all over the place. And they have again their use of the proof text. Remember that these are their good texts. These aren't their weak arguments. These are the ones that they're saying. And he's these are these are going to make our point. Um, they're bad. So yeah. he gets into the Matthew twenty four thirty one. That's the one they use, which I found humorous. Can do you have that one? Yeah, uh, Matthew twenty four thirty one says, and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Now, what does that have to do with <laughs> anything he just said in their affirmation? Nothing. Yeah, it proves nothing. It it just. It approves the word elect is yeah, in the Bible. Yes. Yeah. But but in in just a few chapters prior and in that chapter he, he uses. So in chapter twenty two fourteen, what's it say? Uh twenty two fourteen says, For many are called, but few are chosen. And that's the word elect there. Uh, Same word. It's just yeah. translated as chosen. Yeah. So here we're dealing with many are called, but only a few. Again, now we're clearly getting into an individualistic not everyone is the chosen one, even though many are called. Uh, but then twenty four twenty two, which is in the same chapter. Yeah, it says unless the um, unless those days had been twenty four twenty two. Yeah, yeah. Unless those uh, days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, 
those days will be cut short. That's not some vague group of people who may, if they're asked, willing to let Jesus. He, he, it's a defined body of people, mm-hmm. which is made up by individuals. And then he does it again in 24. Yeah, he says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> they, they ignore the three that actually deal with the elect in some more salvific sense. And he comes up with this dumb one in, in verse, well, not that the scripture is <laughs> dumb, but, but it's dumb toward their the use of it. Yeah. For yeah. Sure. Yeah. It's, I don't need emails. <laughs> um, I, yeah. I did that once when I was preaching. I said, well, that's a stupid text. And um, <laughs> pastor, are you saying that the Bible, the Bible stupid? stupid? Yeah. That's what yes, I'm saying. Yes. Yeah. I've, I've devoted my life to studying it because I think it's stupid. Um, well, pastor, that's what you said. It's like, I'm still saying well, it too. When you apparently. talk for a living, yeah. things come out. Yes. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so then there's another one that they use. They use the John 70 or 670. Um, it, it says, Jesus answered them, his disciples, did I myself not elect or choose you, the 12, yet one of you is a devil? And, and I guess, <laughs> I'm guessing the point in that is, see, he elected a group, but one of them, wasn't saved. Yeah. But I'm like, what, what does that prove? Um, not, not to mention it completely ignores the entire chapter of chapter six, where it, it overtly is saying over and over again that God, the father has given his son all who he is to save and he will not lose one of them. So obviously if that's true, and that's set up in verses 37 all the way down. If that's true, that he's not going to lose a single one that the Father gave him to save, which is election, then Judas was never designed to be saved. He was chosen to be part of the 12, but not to be a, a Christian. And that's, that's different. And it's, it's just, a, it begs the question, using a passage like John 6, 70, uh, of whether or not Judas freely could have chosen not to betray Jesus. Because in John 17, 12, it says that he was ordained to be the betrayer. That mm-hmm. was so that the scripture would be fulfilled. So the question becomes, could Jesus, I mean, could Judas have refused to betray him? Could he have just simply followed him and been a Christian? And the answer is no. God had ordained that this is a man who would betray him. And again, it just slays the idea of, of free will. Mm-hmm. And then, um, Mark, do you got the Romans 8 passage? Oh, yeah. 28 through 30? You yeah. have one job. <laughs> well, well here's, the, here's the thing, though. I can tell all my friends I was on the podcast. There you go. So, all, right. all right. Here's my, yeah, moment. Here's my moment. Don't screw it up. <laughs> oh, Don't call it stupid like I did. <laughs> Passion translation, right? Okay. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> It better not be. (laughs) It's not. (laughs) And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So it's got the word, again, it, it's not the exact, in English, the word elect, but it's got the word, the Greek word for elect in there. And I'm guessing, I'm guessing only because I've heard this stuff so many times, 
that they use that passage to prove their point is that God foreknew. But what 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 is actually the foreknowledge of God? Yeah, it's a, it's that setting that setting of His love upon a person before they even know Him. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. nothing to do with Him looking down through the corridors of time and saying, "Oh, Matt Miller yeah. is yeah. going to want to ask me into His heart, so I'm going to call him the elect." Right. It, it, it's just, it, it's yeah. not. Yeah, I mean, you, tra- you trace it all through the Old Testament, and when he knows a person, it's a special kind of knowing. It's that covenant right. love. Yeah, in fact, that's actually another word for election. Mm-hmm. I, I've elected you. I've known you. I've, I, before you knew me, I've, I've chosen to love you. I've placed it upon you. And, and as a result, the end result yeah. is this. Um, but the reality is that whole list that you just read, Mark, is a series of aorists in the Greek. It, it's just... They're a completed action. They're not potentials. They're they're not possibles. Uh, the same one that he foreknew is the same one he's going to glorify. Uh, and there's no break in that chain. Um, and then they, they deal with another one in Romans. Uh, well, they ignore, rather, the clear painful truth of Romans 9, 15 to 24 that is clearly individualistic, that it's not the one who wills or the one who runs, but upon God who has mercy, that God hardens whom he wishes and he shows mercy to whom he wishes. That's individualistic. And they just gloss over a passage like that. And they know that passage. Um, the point that we're just making here is, again, they they come up with their best verses and they're atrocious. Yeah. None of them argue for some vague group. Mm-hmm.